Watson arrived just the other day. He was with a little girl who was full of dismay, but there were bullets to match <sighs> and my fiddle to play. Her toy maker father had been taken away. She was then taken by a one leg bat, and as he flew, I fucked that up. He'd say, <laughs> And the rats in the palace with a <laughs> robot queen, an army of goons, and a flying machine. So he grabs some balloons and the Union Jack and fly after Rat again. You know we'll fly after Rat again. He crashed his ship and fled <laughs> into Big Ben. He took the girl, so I also dove in. We fought for a while. The gears have started to spin. I did that really bad also. The girl got saved, but my chances were slim. The rat was smug, but he never learned which way the clock hands turn. Yeah, he fell when the clock hands turned. And the rat's on the pavement and his bat drowned too. Father and daughter will be home soon. I don't have any more rhymes or a way out. This is the end of the song. It's probably gone on too long. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to a study in Granada, a bi-weekly podcast where I'm Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes canon, especially the 1980s Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick TV series from Granada. We watch this, yeah, we read the stories and we talk about it. It's fine. We've been off for a while. I'm joined as always by my friend Jackson, who I hoodwinked into this entire endeavor. Hey, I'm also here. We're waiting deep into the episodes. Even I haven't really seen that many times. So we're starting to starting to be on the same footing. The student has started to become mm. also the teacher, co-teacher. <laughs> well, speaking of co-teacher, this week we're joined by friend of the show, Alex Greyhawk. Alex, welcome back to Setting Ground. You were last with us, I believe, in season two for the copper. No, the um, the one with the boat, man. It wasn't the copper beaches. I'll remember. It was the one with the dog named Fudge. Yeah. Fudge. It's going to bother me forever until I find it, so. <laughs> We're very good and definitely know our stuff about Sherlock Holmes. I could have told you that had I not just announced that I would remember it, and now, gun to my head, I could not tell you the title of that episode. Just for the funsies, I googled um, Fudge Sherlock Holmes, seeing if that would give me anything useful. The first result is the footage of the Divinity Fudge Killer. Sherlock Holmes is real. Well, that's what this episode's about now. What? Um, <laughs> the Divinity Fudge Killer? I'll report back next episode. <laughs> uh, it was the Abbey Grange. Uh, anyway, uh, we're off to a very solid, smooth, professional start, but we are here this week for The Great Mouse Detective. This is our bonus episode as we segue into season five. We thought we'd go back to some classics. So not quite a, an official Basil Rathbone movie, but essentially a sort of Basil Rathbone movie. Technically, Basil Rathbone does appear in this I, Was that supposed to be his Sherlock Holmes? Or and did he do the voice then of the Sherlock Holmes? Is that the thing? Yeah. Uh, specifically, the one line from Holmes in this film is lifted from a 1966 radio uh, okay. play. Oh, nice. So then I assume that's also Nigel Bruce as Watson. Uh, I believe so, yes. I observe that there is a good deal of German music on the program. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Oh, that music is so frightfully dull. Uh, yeah, The Adventure of the oh. Red-Headed League is the 66 radio play. We've done nice. the Red-Headed League in, um, not the Basil Rathbone mm -hmm. version, but um, we've actually covered the Red-Headed League before, so our longtime fans are well aware of the We're here about Basil of Baker Street and the Great Mouse Detective. Uh, what did we think about this? Before we get into any actual talking points, Alex, I know that um, you actually and Jackson have covered the, this topic before in your uh, now defunct gratuitous pausing podcast. 
hashtag welcome back at at pause nation uh <laughs> but you cover this during your disney bracket correct no no this did not come up i also don't think we did a bonus episode oh. on it yeah like, that's kind of part of why i wanted to cover it here because like it was a disney film that i hadn't seen and i figured i'd like round out some of those like missing gaps mm-hmm. great mouse sector didn't do well enough to make it into the top 32 disney animated features for box office gross Shocker. so it didn't line up with any of our bonus episodes where we talked about like just mm-hmm. some of the weird Disney stuff that didn't make it in. So you could have tied it into your prep school bracket with young Sherlock Holmes. I, I guess. <laughs> oh, we we definitely could have. <laughs> uh, in fact, there there are some ways in which that flop affected the production of this film. Really? Because so, uh, young Sherlock Holmes came out uh, just a year before. Oh, okay. How did that affect this movie then? Because of the flop, they uh, they actually changed the title. Uh, oh. Originally, it was going to be Basil Baker Street, and uh, when they saw that the very British young Sherlock Holmes just kind of didn't work with audiences, they changed it to The Great Mouse Detective. Hey, okay. Also, a better title. Yeah. The animators would beg to differ. In fact, there was a internal memo kind of poking fun at it with some of the animators. Uh, like, well, we should change the names of some other Disney films, like The Seven Little Men, Help a Girl, The Girl with the See-Through Shoes, and uh, my personal favorite, A Boy, A Bear, and the Big Black Cat. Wait, what's that one? That's oh, right. Jungle uh, Book. Jungle Book. Uh, the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. I, that's, I don't know. I don't agree with that idea, though. Like, I don't. Not that this is like a, necessarily a better title. I like it better, but... It's not like they just mm-hmm. mouse crime solver. Like the great mouse detective <laughs> is actually like a title. It's yeah. not just describing the characters. I mean, it is, but still. I definitely think that the great mouse detective is probably more evocative. It lets you know what you're getting into, mm-hmm. as opposed to Basil of Baker Street, which, if you're not familiar with Holmes mythology, it's not going to really mean anything to well, you. Well, also, I mean, back mm-hmm. in the days before SEO, I mean, Basil of Baker Street, then the name of the books it was based off of. Which were, I guess, mm-hmm. themselves homages mm-hmm. to Sherlock Holmes, like, so yes. forth. But I get why nowadays they'd want to try to get that SEO. But mm-hmm. well, because the books were moderately successful and they are still going. Yeah, they re. Uh, yeah, there was a recent revival. There's a mm-hmm. couple of them. I was looking into some of the premises of them, and they're fine. I think one of them was Basil goes to Mexico. Yep. And I read a bit of one of them. It's not bad. The prose is fine. I didn't get far enough into like find out how the plot goes or if it makes me cry or whatever. But like it, you know, seemed like I'm sure that it, you wouldn't suffer if you read it. Yeah, they are designed for you know young children. So yeah, we don't really have a synopsis this week. The Arthur Conan Doyle website didn't supply us with the Great Mouse Detective, so um, we can jump right into the premise or. If Jackson wants to improvise a synopsis one letter or one letter one letter at a time, one word at a oh time. Oh God, please no. But um, we can T- jump into this. I N space T H E space P A S E. Yeah, sorry. It, all right, my quick summary. Uh, it's the late eighteen hundreds. It is the same time as Sherlock Holmes is happening, and uh, while all that's going down. Uh, the same stories are playing out in the mouse world below them. Rat Watson shows up to Rat Sherlock's house with a small child whose dad has gone missing. He was kidnapped by a bat as part of a convoluted crime by Sherlock Holmes, by Mouse Sherlock Holmes, sorry, by Basil's, by Basil of Baker Street's uh, ex-boyfriend, Professor Radigan, mm-hmm. who's building a robot version of the Queen so he can take over Mouse England and, I guess, tax the poor more. Adventures happen, they stop that from happening, and then... Uh, Basil and Rat Dr. Watson are friends now. Uh, 
Dawson is a mouse. You, you can't say any bad words about David Q. Dawson, the mouse who fought for the Queen Mouse in Afghanistan. <laughs> I am fascinated by the concept of this little mm-hmm. mouse war in Afghanistan. Um, I dug uh, probably too greedily and too deep, and uh, <laughs> I found some odd time inconsistencies. Okay. Okay, so if Dawson, at the beginning of the film, he's just getting back from Afghanistan. Uh, so the film takes place in 1897, because it lines up the uh, the Mouse Queen's uh, Jubilee. Diamond Jubilee lines up with Queen Victoria's. Right. Um, but the second British-Afghan war ended in 1880, so that's 17 years of difference. Looking into it, there were some uh, civil uprisings that uh, the British helped the current ruler of Afghanistan with up until 1893. So that still leaves a four-year gap between when all the fighting, at least the, that the British were doing, ended in Afghanistan versus when Dawson comes back. It could be that it took him four years to, to get back to England. I, I worked out a rough ratio of uh, human size to mouse size, and I, I figure it's roughly about 12 to 1. Uh-huh. So for one, for every inch for us is a foot for a mouse. Okay. Sure. It's it's probably even a greater disparity than that, Man, but boy, whatever. Dude. And I looked into it. The distance between Kabul and London, proportional to a mouse, is more than twice the circumference of the globe. Man, blasted. So Dawson would have effectively had to circumnavigate the globe twice just to get back home to London. Okay, but also, we watched him, like, riding a human taxi. So it's not like, it's not <laughs> I like know. the mice have their own boats also. Like I said, there's this weird timing inconsistency. I guess the the little mouse British Afghan war was uh, a lot longer. Or the war ends, Dawson gets on a boat. He's on the boat for a while. He curses the gods. The gods strand him on an island with a hot mouse witch. Jesus fucking they Christ. Hang out there for like five years. Uh, he gets back on a boat, has some life adventures, winds up on another island with another hot mouse witch for another five years, and eventually gets home. Only he doesn't have a wife, so it's not as shitty. Also, famously... You know, fuck Odysseus. Also, famously, Dr. David Q. Dawson was wounded in Afghanistan. It may have just taken him a year or two to get better. Mm, sure. <laughs> That's also possible. Mouse medicine, obviously, and famously, not nearly as good as human medicine, even at yeah. that time. Also, looking at the uh, odd uh, math. So, if the the mouse... Uh, if all of Mousedom uh, lines up with the, the, you know, the same area as the British Empire at the time. All of Mousedom proportionally would be about twice the land area of Earth. And that's how much territory the Mouse Queen would control. Man, blast it. Wow. Well, there's my sequel. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm going ahead and just, you know, feeding you all this juicy, juicy world building for <laughs> your um, equalizers pitch. Yeah. <laughs> the world building is weird because everything yeah. seems to line up so, like... There seems to be like a pretty much a one-to-one ratio of like Mouse England, Mouse Queen, Mouse mm-hmm. Diamond Jubilee, Mouse Afghanistan, etc. You know, even like uh, Mouse Holmes, Mouse Watson, Mouse uh, Moriarty, etc. Mouse Napoleon. In the books, the mice like actively like model their society after humans because like Basil is like, wow, this Sherlock Holmes guy is great. I want to be just like him. And then everyone else kind of follows suit. Um, so <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, so the mouse, like, watched human Sherlock Holmes being cool, and was like, hey, I'm gonna be just like that guy. Hey, everyone, we should move into this guy's basement. So Basil is the impetus for all of Mousedom. 
I mean, not necessarily all of Maelstrom, but, like, this sector of Maelstrom. So, like, the book opens with him, like, being like, hey, we live in a shithole basement. We should, like, move into, like, the walls of this guy's house because he's cool and posh and let's make a mouse. Like, there's, like, thing where, like, the mice build a town in Chuck Holmes' walls. So, you're talking about, in the context of that book, the mice who have a society yeah. existing within Baker Street are baby basil led the charge on that you're not suggesting the entire world of mouse dumb is now functioning in mirror with our own because basil of baker street thought sherlock holmes was awesome no no, no. Okay. i'm just, uh, saying the uh the entirety of mouse dumb functions in mirror with our own because of some sort of cosmic edict that makes it happen that way <laughs> like and i don't know if it's like a two-way street like if the mouse queen had died in this movie would the like human queen have immediately just dropped dead of a heart attack or it's something like us but mice and people instead of yeah exactly this is us <laughs> m o capital u capital s e writing that down <laughs> um it is a thing that we talked about a little bit with jack sarah watching this about like the mirroring of the world like is there going to be a mouse 911 and i was thinking about this the other day and i almost just texted jackson out of the blue the only words mouse breaks it and that was just like all i was like no <laughs> Oh, mouse Brexit made me laugh very much. The mouse who killed Mouse Hitler, then also the Bigfoot. God, and the Mouse Bigfoot, please. <laughs> it's a movie for children, so children aren't going to think this hard about it. But it's very funny the implication mm-hmm. of just like everything that's happening in the human world is also happening. You know, so like, there's a mouse war in Afghanistan, and then there's going to be like Mouse World War One and Mouse World War Two. And looking into this, like I knew, like I don't think anyone in the production of any of these if the in the books the movie mm-hmm. ever thought this hard about it oh no and mm-hmm. you know that's totally fine yeah but it is the world building is so weird because they're like no it's just a one-to-one analog if we were for the afghanistan thing i wouldn't have thought that hard about it exactly like if you have mice having a queen that's fine um that's it's it's totally reasonable they like for this kids movie, the mouse society would mirror human society pretty close. That's fine, but like the idea of the wider world following suit so closely is just very bizarre. Also, just the idea of this like tiny little mouse war. You have to circumnavigate the globe twice to get to Afghanistan. Like, what does the mouse queen possibly have interest in that far away? Oil, cheese. Now that we've spent seventeen minutes talking just about the world building, uh, we have some talking points <laughs> people wanted to get into. Um, we've touched on novel comparisons. We've jack- Alex has done their beautiful mind on all the math. Uh, was there anything else here? I see we have Sherlock and children somebody was interested in talking about. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever seen a Sherlock Holmes thing where, like, Sherlock interacts with a child to a significant degree. Beyond, like, um, young Sherlock Holmes, obviously. I don't think we've seen, at least not in Granada, him inter- interact with children. And I don't know if we will. Though, like I said, we're getting into some of the stories I'm less familiar with. But generally speaking, I don't think he's ever dealt with children. Yeah, like we saw like Dr. Watson getting choked out by some ghost children, but that like Sherlock wasn't there for that. And I'm I'm not as familiar with like the Granada series, but even in like the the BBC show or Elementary, I also don't really re- recall seeing Sherlock interact with children there. Mm-hmm. Um, it would probably go terribly in either case, but but also like the the way he interacts with the kid here, where he's kind of just very annoyed by the kid being a kid, doesn't doesn't listen to her, pushes her away, mm-hmm. doesn't want her involved and stuff, cares about her safety in a kind of abstract way that you're kind of supposed to care about <laughs> fragile beings like children, as opposed to thinking of her as a person. He cares about her safety in the way that like society expects him to. Yeah, which right. tracks for Sherlock Holmes and th- some things of like yeah, I like recognize that- I'm supposed to think that this is important and children should be safe. So yes, go over there and be safe but mostly just leave me alone 
that tracks perfectly for what I think a Sherlock Holmes interaction with a child would be like. So good job, movie. You've kind of uh, yeah. hit the nail on the head. Overall, I definitely think that their uh, portrayal of Basil as emulating Sherlock Holmes, like it, he was pretty close to what I would expect. Um, it's obviously toned down a little bit because it's a children's movie. Like you don't have, you know, Basil taking out some like snuff. And, um... Basil doesn't just shoot up with hair or cocaine because he's bored. Um, yeah, exactly. I disagree to some extent that this was like the way I'd imagine a Sherlock Holmes. Cause one, he does maybe he has one actual deduction in the whole movie, and that's the opening bit with Dawson. The second one, he does a little bit of like, he does some science and is like, we'll need to find somewhere near the, the river or whatever. But arguably, yeah. it's more like a Robert Downey Jr. or Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I, I will definitely grant you that. Like, I think personality wise, mm-hmm. it works out, but there was surprisingly like little mystery in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think part of it is it's weird because we're getting a third person sort of omniscient perspective um where that's not often the case in most mystery fiction mm-hmm. um and so like we're seeing what radigan's up to for the most part and it's we don't ever like have a scene where basil figures out you know the plan and how to stop it or whatnot it's mostly like the only sort of like detective work that he has to do is figuring out where Radigan is. And even then at the end when they're tied to that mousetrap, he's like, oh, isn't it obvious, Watson? He's going to replace the queen with a robot or whatever. And it's not even like, and here's how I saw that. It was just like, we kind of know he saw like the guard stuff. He had the toy maker. There was all that. And like, but it was Mm -hmm. mostly just not like, oh, and of course, if you've noticed this and this and this, this is how I got, it was more of just like, we watched the movie, we know what's happening. Then Bowser's like, oh yeah, this was the plan the whole time. Yeah, it it felt more like a spy movie than like a Sherlock Mm -hmm. Holmes thing. Well, I think part of that is because in order for a Sherlock Holmes story to like resolve, like you have to have a structure of authority and policing that will facilitate a person being stopped by their crime being discovered. And Radigan uh, has a kaiju that he feeds his underlings to. Like, who is going to oppose him? That cat is fucking wild. I mean, obviously, you know, Mouse Scotland Yard uh, context with, you know, the dogs from 101 Dalmatians, and that, that's how they solved that. Oh, that's, God. Yeah, that's fair. Sorry, I galaxy-brained for a minute. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is, honestly, that also is tickling the lizard brain part of my mind. It's like, League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen universe. <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentle Mouse. Jackson, I see that kind of, I think, ties us in with... Um, Talking about the kaiju and that cat being a lot, things that you could put in a Disney movie once that I know you were interested in touching on. Oh, yeah. So, Professor Radigan has this whole, like, D list villain song. <laughs> From the brain that brought you the big Ben Caper, the head that made headlines in every newspaper, and wondrous things like the Tower Bridge job, that cunning display that made Londoners sob. Now comes the real tour de- During which one of his underlings is just getting incredibly drunk. You know, back when you could get drunk in a Disney movie. Like God intended. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the mouse um, calls Professor Radigan a rat, and uh, he feeds this guy slowly to this giant cat he has trained to come to a bell. Uh, and it's horrifying. <laughs> For kids. I mean, they they do at least, like, cut to, like, a, you know, shadow boxing version of uh, 
him being consumed, which helps slightly. And also, mm. I mean, we watched it try to eat a bat for about three full minutes while the bat fought back, and that was unsettling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's also just a lot of things in this film, like, wow, the 80s were wildly different time. Because uh, you also have quite a bit of smoking in this film, which a G film uh, with smoking in it is completely unheard of in this day and age. Well, and mm-hmm. um, most of the time, like smoking in a movie, pretty much it automatically gets you an R rating. Like the, or the Big Ben sequence also was fairly terrifying. That little girl mouse almost got murdered by the big cogs. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh yeah, G rating. <clears throat> Basil also said fuck like three times. <laughs> it is interesting because uh like when you know the disney submitted this to the the ratings board mm-hmm. um they did have some trouble getting that g rating that they were looking for although it wasn't uh it was a little bit the alcohol although disney spun that as like well he drinks gets drunk and then dies so he can't really be saying to promote drunkenness and you know they they the board agreed mm-hmm. Um, but the big thing was the uh, cabaret sequence in the bar. Uh, that that mouse was just too sexy for the ratings board, and they were gonna slap a PG rating on us. I like that. That was where the PG like nothing else about this movie. They were fine with every other aspect of this, except for the mouse that was just too sexy. I mean, from what I was reading, yeah, about that, like it was it was the drunk mouse at the beginning, and then the that cabaret scene. Nothing about like the the you know, mouse getting eaten, nothing about the smoking. Again, it was the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting coming from the company who made Robin Hood, in which most people were like, I 100% had a huge crush on that fox. I thought that fox was sexy. <laughs> and we're like, I don't know if we can do the sexy mouse. I don't know. That's a lot. Maybe not. And- I think it's like there's like one centimeter too much cleavage. If they like moved that, um, that shirt up just a smidge, it would have been fine for the ratings board. But one assumes, I don't know, I, not my ballywick. I assume by sexy mouse you're talking about David Q. Dawson as <laughs> as one of the village people. Um, I mean, not not personally, but I I'm not gonna king shame anyone. Let's see, we have production info. I don't know if we've you touched on all the production stuff, Alex, that you were gonna talk about. Um, I mean, I can I can go pretty far into it if you want. Sure. Um, like. This, the Great Mouse Detective is interesting because it's it's effectively a transition fossil of Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Um, for reference point for folks, this comes out a little after Fox and the Hound of the Black Cauldron and right before Oliver and Company, and then in two years, the Disney Renaissance, Little Mermaid finally hits, and we actually have like good Disney movies again. There's three years of difference between this and. Uh, the Little Mermaid. In fact, John Musker and Ron Clements, um, who, if you are familiar with Disney production stuff, you know that they are kind of some of the golden boy directors of Disney. They were responsible for The Little Mermaid. They were responsible for Aladdin. They were responsible for Hercules, Treasure Planet, Moana. They actually have a new film uh, they're working on called Middlemen that I'm very interested in. Um, is that like the DC but yeah, this... Heroes Metalman? <laughs> I, I doubt okay. it. I hope so. I was just curious. It would be awesome. I can literally find no information on it. I just know a title. But yeah, so this is the Musker and Clement's first time working together. Um, there are actually four directors on this. 
which makes sense because the production schedule was cut down to a year uh, and the budget slashed in less than half. Uh, it was greenlit with a $24 million budget and then there was some changes to the um, executive structure. Uh, we have Michael Eisner come in as CEO and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg come in as the head of the film division and Eisner cuts the budget down to $10 million, which is honestly why it kind of looks a little bit cheap. There's uh, like there's a few continuity errors. If you watch closely, most of the time, there's only one actual character moving at a time. Mm-hmm. Especially in that bar scene. Like if you look at like conversations and you look at the person who's not talking, they are like completely still. There's like no idle animations, no blinking, anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, you also see those, like, this very dark outline that's from... Uh, the Xeroxing process for transferring uh, the pencils to the animation cells, which was a lot cheaper than uh, doing it by hand. Um, so, like the the animators were working on a time crunch with a very limited budget, and uh, they kind of did the best they could. They also cut um, quite a bit out of the film, which may be why we're missing some of those like deduction and detective work scenes that you know we would typically associate with a Sherlock Holmes thing. Sure. The other like really interesting thing is, so this is one of Disney's first forays into uh, computer generated animation, which like nowadays, like we, we understand it, you know, films are mostly done in digitally, especially like post-processing stuff. So you just kind of take your digital animation files and you work them into your normal video. But this was still done on animation cells. So I'm like, how how did they do this? With something like Toy Story, what what they did, it was still a digital file, and they effectively just recorded it playing on a computer, and that's how they got it over to film stock. With this, what they had to do is they did all of the computer animations for like the gears in Big Ben uh, in wireframe, and then they printed them out and then traced them onto animation cells by hand. Mm-hmm. Which is wild. While technically the Black Cauldron did have um, CGI in it as well and released first, Mm -hmm. the CGI that they did for that film didn't start until they saw the Great Mouse Detective productions like, hey, that's really neat and would save us some hassle. Let's also do something like that. What CGI was there in Black Cauldron? I believe the the title character of that film was CG animated. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Uh, the also another interesting scene about the kind of big set piece, big Ben fight, uh, that was actually inspired by uh, the Castle of Cagliostro, uh, which is a loop in the third film. If you're not familiar, it's also it was the directorial debut of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Hmm. Nice. I've seen the Castle of Cagliostro, and now that you say that, it makes perfect sense. There's a lot of clockwork gear yeah. and fight. They're fighting with clockwork gear scenes. Yeah. Also, obviously, the the final problem being a great inspiration of yeah. Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. fighting his great nemesis, and then both of them fall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or do they? There is a great scene in the Granada episode where Jeremy Brett is um, bicycling on a very small helicopter that he made himself to go back up the waterfall. <laughs> I thought we haven't talked a lot about the late great Vincent Price as Professor Radigan. Uh, our kind of our Moriarty for the evening because we have to have a Moriarty in every Sherlock Holmes thing ever. 
I will say, based off of a joke that Jackson and I made while watching this, I did try to find, because it took me forever to figure out a song to do for this episode, I did try to figure out if I mispronounced the name Basil, if that would get me to anything, because at one point he calls him Basil, just because he's Vincent Price and he's eating every scene alive. <laughs> yeah. It, like, the casting of Vincent Price here is really interesting. Um, he's clearly having a lot of fun. The character design for Radigan and, like, what I would associate with like a Vincent Price character, there's some some dissonant there, but it, it definitely works because you have Radigan, who's this character who is very cognizant that he is larger than all of these mice that he, uh, you know, he's not as, um, you know, demure and cute. And he's got some sort of, you know, aggressive features. And so he kind of, you know, tries to cover that up with his suaveness, with his, you know, um, ostentatious clothes. And, you know, Vincent Price is definitely playing up, you know, the, the foppishness a little bit here. What a delightful dilemma it was, trying to decide on the most appropriate method for your demise. I had so many ingenious ideas, I didn't know which to choose. So, I decided to use them all. Marvelous, isn't it? And then you, like, at the very, you know, final battle, you see Radigan just kind of letting that visage drop. Mm. And it's, you know, he's kind of this sort of hulking, almost monstrous creature. It's like, I got some Jekyll and Hyde vibes from it. He also reminded me a lot of um, the animation we'd see later in Beating the Beast. The the Beast yes. has a, a similar-ish shape that is fluid enough for whatever the scene needs it to be. I love Vincent Price because he all loves to play villains, so he always plays villains as just gleefully evil, and I oh, I love mm -hmm. to see it. I'm I'm here for a, you know a, a villain who has a, a story where you're like yeah okay and they, you know they think they're the good guy. Right? I also just love. Him. I was like no, I'm just evil. Like I like. I like being a madman, a bad man. And I mean, it it works really well for, um, you know, Disney villains, especially kind of going into the Disney Renaissance, because all of the big villains are like that. Um, so, I mean, you can kind of say that it kind of started here with Vincent Price. Yeah, we really don't have any, like, redeemable villains for most of the Disney Renaissance I can think of. Oh no! Like that's that's a very recent change. Is Aladdin the King of Thieves in the Disney Renaissance? Because the dad's kind of a villain who's redeemed. Mm, I wouldn't call part of the core. I wouldn't either. Uh, yeah. I can't even recall if that was um, the the film studio who did that or the uh, other Disney animation company that does like their you know, like um, TV animation or direct video sequels. Let's mm, try. Right. Um, I don't know. Let's find I know Return of Jafar was done by that other studio. I can't recall if um, King of Thieves was as well. It had. It had. Uh, yeah, it was by their TV departments. I haven't seen Return of Jafar yeah. since. Like, I saw it once as a kid. I don't think I've ever watched it again. And I don't think Aladdin and the King of Thieves was better than Return of Jafar. There's absolutely no way they gave it a theatrical release. I mean, they got Robin Williams back, so. Yeah, King of Thieves, I think, stronger than Return of Jafar. Return of Jafar is. I saw a better thing out from under the sofa than that movie. But Return of Jafar really isn't a movie in and of itself. It's it's barely reaches uh, feature length. Is it's like sixty nine minutes long. Um, it's mostly there as a setup for the animated uh, Aladdin sure. TV show. 
that's why you have Abyss Maul as one of the main characters there. I have again. I haven't seen it in probably twenty five years. So I and I saw it once. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, uh, unless anybody has anything else they really want to talk about here in um, our talking points, we can move on to monographs. I'm trying to think if I had any um, little things that you wanted to just touch on, but you don't really have a TED talk about. You just thought it was neat. I try mm -hmm. to keep an eye out because we watched um, Sherlock Gnomes a couple seasons ago for the bonus episode, and there were a lot of little references in there like... Um, the moving company that was moving everybody was like Sharonford Moving Services, which is a reference to the one of the names that he Doyle originally considered for Sherlock, and then in some cases moved on to be like a, an older brother, even than Mycroft. Uh, so I was looking for stuff like that. I didn't really find anything. I don't know if anybody noticed any fun references. Um, yeah, not not particularly. Um, I there was a couple like crimes that Radigan mentioned in his villain song, and I tried to look up and see if there was any click connection to Sherlock stuff there, but nothing really hit, except for fan fiction. Of course. Yeah. Can't believe Radigan's song included the aluminium crutch, which is a classic of the <laughs> Sherlock referenced but never seen cases. Uh, I do want to shout out Mrs. Um, Judson, who they literally just went to the next <laughs> consonant in the alphabet for that character's name. <laughs> Oh, and I do yeah. want to shout out from the books that uh, Mrs. Judson is Basil's mousekeeper. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're done. Unless we, you know, we can do must clash, but there wasn't really that many, that much facial hair. I mean, I there are some, like, there are some monographs, um, not necessarily references oh, sure. to um, Sherlock stuff, but there's definitely a few Disney references. Like, there's obviously a... Toy modeled after Dumbo in the toy shop. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. The Pizza Planet truck is there as a carriage. There are definitely some allusions to uh, the Rescuers, which came out in 1977. Hmm. So I'm just well, and honestly, could be co-universal. I think some of the animation actually got reused with the the mice kind of kind of shuffling into the Diamond Jubilee with the Queen hmm. and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and I, I also believe that some of the like the backgrounds are similar. Gotcha. But yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities between this and the rescuers. In fact, um, this actually got pushed back um, to like the mid '80s because it was so similar to the rescuers, and they didn't want to have them both um, in production concurrently. You may know this, and if not, it's fine. How long after the rescuers was rescuers down under? Was it like an immediate thing? Because the animation styles, if my memory serves, were very different. Oh no, uh, the Rescuers Down Under uh, came out, I believe, in the uh, the mid-90s, uh, if I recall correctly. I uh, just have this up. Rescuers in, 90, in 77 and Down Under in 90. Okay. Oh yeah, 90, okay. Yeah, so there, there's a huge, huge animation difference, um, and you can definitely tell. Uh, it's also really interesting because The Rescuers Down Under is the like first theatrically released Disney sequel. Well, uh, does anybody have any other monographs they want to touch on about any fun bits, a line you enjoyed, things you hated, anything like that? Probably if I could find my notes, but I could not. I'm sure they're going to materialize the second we turn off recording. Then 
do we want to do a mustache? I don't think there's that much facial hair. It's really the the toy maker dad and then the fake mustaches Holmes and or Dawson and Basil have. Other than that, I don't really remember a whole lot of facial hair. Nah. I guess the toy maker, Mr. Flaversham, takes it by default. I mean, technically, all of them have facial hair. They're mice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, look. Technically, you are correct, which is the best kind of correct. So, so we're saying that Mr. Flattersham wins uh, Mouse Clash? God damn it, Jackson. <laughs> Good call. Well, uh, unfortunately, on that note, we're going to end another episode of the series of Granada. We'll be back here very soon with season five, I think. Uh, I've lost count. But before we go, Alex, did you have anything that you would like to plug? Um, I mean, you can check out my um, unfortunately now defunct uh, podcast that I've actually uh, co-hosted with Jackson, Gratuitous Pausing. Um, we do a number of movie brackets where we match up to you know similarly themed films and one moves on until we're finished. Um, there's a number of interesting ones. We have a Disney one. Uh, that is probably our longest. It took nearly a year to finish. Um, there's uh, one about comic book movies, but it features no Marvel or DC uh, comics. Um, we have a couple um, horror brackets, which are really fun. In the description, you'll find links to the one where we talk about Young Sherlock Holmes, uh, and also one where we're talking about Us, mm-hmm. which I think this this movie is kind of squarely in between. I wish this movie, like Young Sherlock Holmes, had had a disclaimer at the beginning and at the end. <laughs> don't like, add us. Like, look, this is based on the stories. It's not canon. You don't need to write letters, please, God. Uh, but if you'd like to add us, you can find us at in Granada on Twitter. Yep, at in underscore Granada. Yeah. But yes. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Alex. Um. Yeah. Be. Yeah. Beyond that, um, you can find me usually talking about movies on Twitter. If you follow me there, you might, uh, in the next few months, see some news about a new project I'm working on. Ooh, so. keep an eye out there. Jackson, do you have anything to plug? We never do our own, also other plugs, possibly. I'm not really involved in anything, like, out in the public right now, so I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to plug any of your private projects <laughs> that nobody else will be able to see <laughs> or hear or view? Or... Uh, here, look at the maps that I'm that on my desk where I'm trying to figure out the, like, floor plan of Hamunaptra from The Mummy. There you go. Here, have some folio. I mean, you can also just follow Jackson on Twitter for photos of, like, baked goods all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's Jackson Eflin on Twitter. I'm very easy to find. Alright, well, I, I... In case you're a new listener, I also have another podcast called The Equalizers, where myself and my co-host Madison Jones take movies that never got a sequel, either because they're very good and they don't need one, or they're very bad and they don't deserve one, and we come up with sequels for them. As you're hearing this, we will likely definitely have out our little vampire sequel, Cyrano to Little Vampire. Uh, depending on when this comes out, you might be able to hear my co-host Madison Jones, who I made, do a detective noir sequel to Barbie Dolphin Magic. Uh, that might be out on the feed as well, or will be, depending on when this comes out. So keep an eye out there. We have some great stuff. Uh, our Avengers movies are coming up here in about 10 weeks as well. So keep your ear on the floor. But otherwise, next time, Jackson and I find out what the fuck is up with the, the disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax. Rivera to meet thy go.